Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their 0 to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.io. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent, it costs half as much as in-house developers. And you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days, no risk. And we guarantee you being on time and on budget, or we'll finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.l. We can spec out your SaaS project today. Today, I have Derry Holt of 1UP Sales based out of the UK. Derry has a software as a service sales activity management platform that helps sales teams take all of their sales data and gamify it to increase sales revenues. Today, we're going to talk to Derry and his 0 to 30,000 MRR journey. How are you today, Derry? I'm very good. Thank you very much, Jordi. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Great. So why don't you give us a quick intro about who you are and what up sales does? Yeah, sure. So I'm Derry. Hi, I'm the CEO and co-founder of the business. I set this up straight out of university with my co-founder, James. Both of us used to be video games developers. So I used to work on the Angry Birds video game series, which was a thing, of course, until Fortnite came along and dealt a pretty deadly blow to it. Um, off the back of that, we thought, how can we use what we know about building video games to build business software? Or salespeople, lots of data being produced, very motivationally driven. How can we combine that with video games that often uses a lot of data or input to then motivate and keep people engaged? And over time, we built out this platform that whilst it initially started as a core concept of essentially playing fantasy football with salespeople, i.e. they earn a point for making a phone call, five points for booking a meeting, 20 for closing a deal. We started running these competitions that use data from CRM systems in real time so managers aren't having to use whiteboards and spreadsheets anymore. Over time, that's now evolved into having a TV display inside the system. So if you're in an office, you have TVs all around you that will sing out in real time when someone closes a deal. Some reporting built inside it as well. Essentially, we try and serve as the almost like a virtual sales manager or virtual sales director to assist the incumbent sales managers in doing their job better so they can spend more time coaching their staff to ultimately raise revenue and keep everyone motivated. Okay, great. It sounds like a really interesting idea. I'm excited to talk about it. Tell me about how you came up with the idea. Like, mm -hmm. tell me that's a story. Like, uh, it sounds to me like you had... It's nothing glamorous, trust me. <laughs> you had to sort of... sounds like you made a pivot at some point. You started building something and then you pivoted? Kind of. So we actually kind of set up as a... Um, kind of like a games development studio and gamification house. And I said gamification house at the time. It was more of like a little tag that we put on the end in case anyone was curious to make use of our services. And we joined an accelerator program here in the UK as part of NatWest Bank, where they take you in, they give you all the support, free office space, things like that. And they basically said to us, what do you guys want to be? Do you want to be a games developer, which at the time we did, or do you want to try and build a business? And we thought we could try and build a game here, but we know that it's a very, very risky call to make, especially when there's no real proven experience on our side outside of working in a larger dev team. So we thought, okay, let's do something we've never done before. Let's go and build a web app. And um, we didn't really do much problem validation, admittedly. We kind of really scrapped this together for the first couple of years of just thinking, 
we'll keep on building this and talking to people until it looks like something they'll pay for. And the idea, truthfully, just came from a co-founder on a rainy drive home from Birmingham to my hometown of Tamworth. And he just quite simply said, you know, what if we use like fantasy sports and like games together with sales data? He was like, I I don't know, it's a random idea. And I was like, no, no, carry on. That's a good idea, actually. Carry on talking about it. And then his whole idea of if we use like points earning capabilities from doing performance in a sales team to award people points and do competitions, sounds like a pretty fun idea. And I was like, all right, wicked, great idea. Got into work the next day, super, super excited, told our mentor, look, we come up with a great idea. Here's what we want to build. And he was like, okay, has anyone else done this before? And we got on Google and the first thing we discovered was literally a week prior, Microsoft had acquired exactly the same business idea, but in the States. And we were like, at the time, naturally a super naive business guy. is like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Like someone's already done it. It's been done before. And he was like, look, there's millions of digital agencies around the world, yet people still keep on setting those up. You may as well just go for it. If anything else, it's a sign that people are willing to pay for and buy the software. So we just said, fuck it, let's go for it. We haven't made it happen from there, really pushed for it. And I uh, got to a stage today where we've kind of, again, hacked things together, built things in maybe that weren't initially intended to be in there, but it's, got, it's making us money. It's growing the business out. Can't complain too much. Okay, great. By the way, I think that that's a good thing when you see somebody else doing it. And so you, mm-hmm. do you agree with that now? Definitely. Um, yeah, many, many years on. Um, I think if no one else is doing it, like unless you are really coming up with a truly groundbreaking idea, there's a fair to good chance if someone else is doing it, there's a reason why, right? Either there's customers willing to spend money, there's someone interested in acquiring it, or you just know that there's someone that's got the proof and experience out there to say, we've done the market research and we know that this is a thing that can be successful. So as long as, you know, it isn't like thousands and thousands of companies and you're fighting for a very, very small part of the market, I think if someone's gone out there and done some market validation to show this idea is needed, there's nothing wrong with taking it and executing it better, right? That's right. That's right. Um, So how would you say the market is now? How many sort of sales activity platforms that gamify the sales experience are out there now? There's a lot out there that do the gamification piece. You know, you go all the way from like enterprise level tools, but I just kind of more like a HR slash learning kind of thing that can be used for sales as well, all the way through to more dedicated sales ones. So we have a full spectrum of competitors, some who, you know, don't really describe themselves as a sales gamification platform, but can do it. And those that actively say, no, we are for sales teams and our whole focus is on driving productivity inside those teams. What we think has been missing is something that serves as more than just a competition management tool, because most sales teams these days want analytics. They want some kind of TV display in the office to make sure everyone knows what's going on. They want gamification as well, but very few platforms seek to do all three areas to a degree that people would be happy. And that's where we're trying to fill our niche essentially. Okay, great. So going back to that initial idea, how far along was the MVP? Like how hard was it for you Mm -hmm. to pivot from what you had to like when you first had a platform where you could actually sell to customers? I mean, the initial platform itself was essentially just a dashboard and competitions, right? And then we kind of had to build more in. So it was more like a a strong period of development than it was so much a pivot. But I'd say from the initial idea of starting to build it, it was probably in March 2016. Yeah, probably March 2016, all the way through to the end of 2017, during which time we raised funding, hired a bunch of people, messed it all up and had to go back to just me and my co-founder. You're probably looking there at about two years to really get the idea right to the stage that a good number of businesses were then looking to buy it. Okay. Okay, good. So why don't you walk me through that two year? That sounds like a very interesting uh, two years <laughs> where I'm sure you've learned quite a lot of things. Um, you, so you started building, you and your co-founder do the coding, is that right? 
Correct, yeah, because we both used to be developers in C++. We just thought, hey, it can't be that hard to go and learn web dev, right? <laughs> Wrong. Right. <laughs> it's a right. whole it's a whole new ball game. a lot of other considerations. There were a lot of mistakes that were made along the way, right? But essentially, we got to like... Sorry to interject. What's a program? Uh, it's, it's totally fine. Um, it's Laravel PHP on the back end and React JavaScript all across the front end. Okay, perfect. Okay, so tell me, walk me through that two-year period. So you're, at this point, you're still going through NatWest Bank's accelerated program, is that right? Correct, yes. We were still with them. So basically, middle of 2016, we've been at it for about a year, starting to run out of money, just like, okay, I mean, a lot of this, to be fair, was from a stipend from our university. They'll give you like a year's worth of stipend to cover some, i say some, some living debt. costs. It's about £300 okay. a month. It's really not a lot. Um, but they were for your living costs, so you could continue to do the business. Uh-huh. And we got to like middle of 2016 and I was like, right, this is either going to die in the next few months or we're going to try and raise some money. And just as we were about to launch our fundraising round, we actually had an investor reach out completely cold and just say, we're really keen on B2B SaaS companies, especially in the gamification space right now. You guys caught our interest. Can we have a conversation? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. No problem. Let's do that. And I think at the time we had one customer and that customer had come via our accountant when we did a pitch at their like awards dinner. I spoke to one of their guys the next day, just blind over Twitter, and he was like, yeah, sure, we'll have a conversation. And they really liked it, signed up to pay £400 a month. And uh, admittedly, the, it was very cobbled to get a solution back then. Like each morning, I'd get up at 8 a.m., take some spreadsheets from their CRM, upload it manually into our platform. Like there was no integration system it. in yeah. place at the time. So it was really scrappy. Yeah. We had this one customer paying £400 a month, and they were like, oh, so clearly there's some interest in what's going on. Who else are you speaking to? And we'd had conversations with a few of the big names, one of them being a pretty big, like 30K a year deal or so that they were very excited about. Six months went by, we raised the money essentially, got it in the bank and was like, right, cool, we're going to raise some funding here and um, build a team out, see where we can take this. And I think looking back now, the one mistake we made was, one, we didn't really have enough customers or traction to raise that money. Looking back now, we had one customer. That one customer dropped us in January as the money landed in our accounts. We were back to zero customers, zero revenue. Our investors were like, okay, look, you've got a pipeline of 10 or so guys. There's about 150K's worth of ARR in here. Like, you can still do this. And I was like, okay, we'll see. And as the year went by, I think we just realized the product wasn't really mature enough to sell to these customers. And we hadn't really hired the right people. A lot of them had been people I knew through friends or people that had just been in like sales for 20 years or so, but had really been in the wrong sector and not done too much. So come the end of 2017, we had to make that really hard decision. This was a horrible time for me to let go of all the staff we'd hired, just go back down to me and my co founder again. Started 2018 with like, I think, 2.4K a monthly recurring revenue. That was enough to pay my co-founder a bit of a salary because he was paying a mortgage. I was still my parents at the time mm-hmm. and enough to pay for our server costs. wasn't really ideal, but the product had come on an awful long way by then. And we kind of realized a little bit more with about eight customers on board what they actually wanted. to so built it out to a good level. And then start of 2018, we formed a couple of partnerships with recruiter networks in the UK they really liked the product and were very, very aggressive in pushing it out to their base and saying, look, guys, you need to get signed up from this. So in about March to June of 2018, I think we signed up like 30 customers or something, ended on like 35 customers, I think, by the end of June. So to us, that was a really good kind of growth and proof period. People really like this. They love the reporting. They love the gamification. We've got the right sort of idea. So I guess kind of lucky towards the end, but essentially raising 150 grand to build out a product a little bit further. Maybe not the best use of funds. Right. So it's because it mostly went to staff. Is that what you say? Yes. Like, was it like 80% to staff or? Yeah. So it was to a couple of devs, which to be fair, did help us build things out. But it went to two sales guys, to a marketing lady that we hired, for example. And they just didn't, one, I don't think we're very ready to jump into a startup. And two, didn't really have a product that was ready to be pushed, to be honest with you. Okay. And so um, 
The 150,000, sorry, how fast did it take for you to blow through that? Uh, about 10, 11 months or so. Okay. That's not, that's not bad, though. But it was you- okay. Like, considering some try, like, they tried to drive us to do it all in six months, and we were like, realistically, like, this is still very early days. Can we take a little bit longer on this? Um, we wanted to go to 18 months. They said, let's settle in the middle at 12. So we said, okay, let's aim to spend in 12. But I think it was very apparent by month six or seven that we weren't going to hit the targets we were after. So going back, let's say the knowledge that you have now and you went back and you were given that 150,000, would you have spent it in what way? Mostly on all devs then, or what would you have done? We hired two devs. So we were already quite tech heavy at this point. If you consider me still somewhat a developer at points, there was technically four of us on the dev side of things. So it was quite yeah. a lot. I think one thing that really needed to happen before we went and raised that money was proper market validation, speaking to more people, understanding what their pains were, what they needed solving, and actually going back and building the solution, which was mainly a reporting focus that they really wanted at the time. Probably also hiring someone who had had experience in an early stage SaaS company, because I think we were just, we hired someone who had 20 years in telecom sales, essentially. They'd always been at a kind of a BD level. They'd never gone to like directorship level. They just came into a SaaS company with no idea how to sell software. And really, that was my mistake for hiring the wrong person. Um, so I probably would have looked to hire someone better, would have put more focus on where we were actually putting our dev efforts rather than just on, I guess this sounds like it might be valuable. Let's go and build it. Right. Long story short, more market validation was needed, I think. Okay. And how do you think, what's been the best way for you to do market validation that you've discovered so far? Truthfully, we've done it the way that no, no startup ever should. If you're following the lean startup methodology, we've just kind of sold our way through it and then took feedback and advice as we've kind of gone along from customers. So someone will have it and they'll say, oh, I'd be really cool if it could do this because my CRM is really bad at that. And I'm like, okay, that's a value point. If we buy that, are you going to stay with us? They'll be like, yeah, got it. It'd solve a massive problem. I'd never want to leave you at any point. So we've kind of gone down the path of doing this. People saying, oh, we really want it to be able to do this. You really want it to be able to do that. And it's only really in the last six months or so we've become a very, very product-focused company whereby we have a product manager in place who's speaking to customers, interviewing them on every single feature idea we have. We're all gathering every bit of feedback we get into one place so we can see what the big requests are for. We're a lot better now than we were, um, but product was absolutely the way forward, I think, back then that we didn't really pay attention to. But, hey, a bit of naivety for us. Right, right. Now, it sounds like you're definitely on the right path. So how much would you say the MVP ended up costing you then? If you stripped away all the, all the sort of external costs like for salespeople that were sort of spinning their wheels how much was the mvp would you say uh in the two-year build up 45 and then we hired two devs i was looking at about 60 probably about 150k i'd say we spent before it really hit any kind of traction early 2018 and now if you were to go back and take that sort of it sounds like you had some bloated uh, features in there. If you were to strip that down, do you think you could rebuild it? And how fast do you think you could rebuild it? I'd say a lot of our dev time went into the integrations with third-party products because that's where a lot of our strength exists, right? Like people have got a double end to data into both the CRM and our platform. It's never going to happen. So the integrations, the back and forth in with partners, the back and forth in with tech partners who didn't either have an API at the time or had a very weak one. That was a lot of the time to be fair, which I don't think we could have avoided. Actual product dev itself, that could have been cut down a lot. Like to go from spending 150 and taking what three and a bit years to get done. Like if we went back now, I reckon we could have our platform up to where it is today in about 18 months pretty quick and pretty easy. Okay. 18 Probably months. halving the spend there down to about 60, 70K, I reckon. Okay. But it sounds like, you know, it's it's got a significant amount of development and thought into it. So, I mean, you've created yourself a um, so, uh, somewhat of a moat around your product that other people can't just come in and, and recreate. 
Yeah, barriers to entry, right? Like the whole thing with the integrations piece, unless they've got those integrations already built from another product, they just simply can't copy the product. It will take so long, to, especially with the partnerships we form as well. Like someone could come in tomorrow and build a partnership and there's already existing competitors who have been in the space about five years longer than us who aren't really all that far ahead, I don't think. They're in a spot where, you know, some of the partners we've now got that we've built integrations with inside four weeks, they're still working on nine months later or have binned off entirely. And that to us is a massive market opportunity where you get these new kind of rises and fallers in the space. There's a new CRM that's appeared in our space, for example. Um, they simply aren't integrating with each other. And I'm like, you guys are literally missing the biggest source of drain from your current main partner. And Bullhorn is like a super large CRM uh, provider in the recruitment space, arguably the largest in the world. They are direct partners with this competitor and about to be partners with us. But there's a new CRM that's starting to drain a lot of their market share away. And this is a partner that's partnership that's not being formed between our competitor and this new CRM, whereas we've already got that partnership. I think that kind of speed of development is really helping us where maybe it's hurting them a little bit and hopefully in future, of course, kind of swings things our way. Right. Okay. So uh, sorry, how many um, APIs are you now integrated with? Uh, Direct native integrations is probably about 17, I think. More passive ones, i.e. where we set up kind of a catch-all, about another 14 or 15. So you're looking at just over 30 in total. 30. Okay. And um, was there like a main API that you had integrated that was, wh- where were we getting that early growth from? Um, you mentioned uh, that, was, you that had... was a bullhorn. Yeah, that was the first okay, one. So we, ca- okay. we came across a customer very early in February that really wanted to use us. They'd use this competitor, been like, they're a bit too expensive, only about the reporting side. We want some gamification and fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said, yeah, like here's access to the API because normally you have to partner with bullhorn and pay quite a substantial fee to get API access. But I said, here you go, we'll get you an account. We've got the documentation. Here you go, go and build the integration. So we did. Once that was ready, that's when we went to this partnership network in the UK and just said, hey, we know Bullhorn are a partner of yours. We know that you really like new tech. You love cool new things to kind of make yourself look like the market leaders, which to be fair, they are. How do you want to partner? Do you want to see the products and see what you think? And the Mm -hmm. first time we showed it to their head guy, he was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm not really interested. Went back to him a few months later and said, look, please just take a second meeting. Let's actually show you the product so you can see what it's all about. We got him excited and on board. He was like, great, absolutely love it then. Let's get it going. Gave them a discount. I think we gave like a half price discount to all their members just to get it out there. And like I say, inside a few months, ended up getting like 20 or 30 more customers on board to go from like eight to 35 in that amount of time. Really, really good for us. Okay, that's great. So I want to go back into the sort of the different phases of growth. Essentially, when it, would you agree with me, like sort of zero to 5,015 and then 15 to 30,000? Is that sort of the different phases? That, did you ever plateau? And if you did plateau, where were those plateaus at? I wouldn't say we did really. I suppose in that first zero to 2.5 was where we really struggled. We had that one customer on board that dropped us. We signed that big 33 grand a year deal in the middle of 2017 when we were halfway through our funding. Okay. And then kind of struggled to get more on board. So it was that real kind of... Initial obstacle of, you know, there's no others in the space that are using it. There's no word of mouth. There's no kind of trust of going, oh, have you seen this product, by the way, it's wicked. Or no one you can lean on in a group and go, have you heard of this product? Because no one had at the time. So that was a really hard point for us. Zero to five, definitely the hardest. Once we got that partnership on board, that kind of growth from two to about 10K by November of the same year in nine months or so was really good for us. So we did grow quite fast. And then 10 to 32, or 10 to 36, actually, which is where we were before COVID came in, that was still a real nice kind of growth curve up, to be fair. Quarter one okay. was our best. We went from, what, 27 to 36 in about three months, which is really nice. And then COVID came in and kicked our backside. 
<laughs> right. Okay. So the first one really, once you integrated with Bullhorn, you were seeing that was the, that sort of that where you push back. How, how are you advertising to those Bullhorn customers? Were you running ads or anything, or were you just going in and just get word of mouth from other um, Bullhorn customers? A little bit of that, a little bit of cold, uh, blind pitching on LinkedIn to see many people say, look, I saw that you mentioned you, you're hiring someone to come and look after your bullhorn CRM, or I've seen that you posted about it. Like, do you mind having a conversation? We're a startup. And they were like, yeah, of course. And that was a really good lead source for slightly larger clients. Um, the rest came about mainly via that network that we joined. That's where we got about 20 or 30 customers all using bullhorn. And admittedly, they were all smaller ones, like generally between three and 10 heads, but it was still clients on our board, which is still uh, revenue for us and got us moving, right? Okay. And so tell me about this um, partnership network and how did you get in and how are you uh, speaking with them? Is it a LinkedIn group or what is it? So there's a whole bunch in the UK. There's loads of UK recruitment groups, essentially, where directors sign up, they get support from peers, like competitors, like it's all a very kind of share sort of share knowledge sort of piece. Mm -hmm. And they're all generally headed up by X like S3 directors, people who worked at one of the largest recruitment companies before they sold for many, many millions, a good number of years ago now. And people who used to work at S3 have now gone on to set up other recruitment firms, networks, tech startups, whatever you want to name it. They've all gone from there to go and do really cool things. So this network that we joined up to, I literally just emailed the guy blind. I was like, look, we've got a cool bit of tech. I know that you like cool tech. You're very, very vocal about that. You want to take a look? And it did take, like I say, a couple of meetings to really get into, see what the product was about, why it's going to really benefit his network. Because to them, there's the benefit of saying we're market leaders. We get the best rates and discounts on tech. We bring forward the newest, coolest tech that's really going to move your recruitment business forward. It's kind of a mutual benefit uh, benefit piece. So we were mm -hmm. lucky to make sure we had that initial kind of cold outreach on LinkedIn turn well for us. And then just making sure that we were saying to them, look, you guys are doing your lunches twice a month in London. Can we come and present? And they would always get two or three suppliers in for each session to pitch. We'd do things like flyers and send it around in an email blast that they'd happily do for us, for example. They gave us their member list. We could contact them all directly. And it was more all that kind of stuff, really. LinkedIn, a bit of cold email, a bit of cold calling, a bit of help promotion internally on their side and really just hammering home all the network access that we had. Okay, great. So it sounds like that partnership was really um, very open and friendly to sharing out. Very, very. Some, That's good. Some aren't in the UK. I think it costs us like £500 a month and then 10% on commission, whereas other networks were looking to charge like £15,000 a year. And I was just like, look, you can't guarantee me that I'm going to get a grand and a half worth of business from this just to break even. Yeah, I was like, look, if you can give me some customers first to justify the cost, then yes. But That's a lot, yeah. Truthfully, that kind of cost, I'd have said no. It's far too much money. The most yeah. ironic thing is that was the first network we spoke to, and they said no on that basis that it cost so much money. We now actually are regularly discussed in their group without being a member. To the stage, we're getting two or three companies every month or so come to us and say, oh, in this network, you've been discussed and mentioned a few times as an alternative to this company. We have a conversation. I'm just like, I mean, yeah, we're not even paying for membership, but we're getting reference. Like, fine by me. Mm -hmm, that's great. Mm. So t tell me how you, you were mentioning that you were in the recruitment space. I presume that came from Bullhorn. But how did you initially fall into that? Was that first customer recruitment? Or how did you discover that your software was particularly well suited to the recruitment and the agency space? So there was a, there's an accountancy in Tamworth, uh, my hometown called Baldwin's Accountants, I think their full name is. Mm -hmm. They every year do what's called a Kickstarter competition where startups from all across the West Midlands, my like state, I guess you guys might refer to it as, they can apply to be in this competition to come and pitch their idea. And if they like you, you get to go to their live finals where three businesses pitch to all of their clients in a lovely like black tie dinner. It's really, really nice. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we made it through to those top three with this idea that we got. I think because the director was quite into sport, it really helped out to say, oh, it's like a fantasy football for sales team kind of thing. And we pitched there, 10 minute pitch. Like everyone got to see what we were up to, got a lot of love and support for it. And we found out the next day on Twitter that a recruitment company was there. And we were like, well, we think this works for sales teams. Recruitment is a form of sales. Let's speak to them. But let's DM them blind and just said, you know, you saw us last night. Do you mind if you have a conversation? And it was actually a social media intern that responded. He was just like, oh, the director sat behind me. Like, I'll ask him if you want. And um, the director messaged me, really nice guy, David Burks, his name was, still really good friends now. And he was like, you know, I wasn't there last night, but I love the sound of this. Let's have a conversation. And we just spoke a little bit. We said, let's give it a go. Let's do a trial for a few months. It had it free for a little while, then they moved to paying £400 a month for it. And that was really where we got our first taste of what recruitment was like. And I think what we realized from a bit of market research, him talking to us, he was saying, look, we use this CRM, we've checked out this one. They're all rubbish when it comes to reporting. They're not very good. And the only company in the space that's like you guys that can really help us with that poor reporting is, is, is this main competitor of ours. And we thought, well, if there's one competitor in the space that's really expensive and only really focuses on one particular area um, in terms of functionality, like we feel we can really contend against those guys. We started looking around all the different integrations, understanding what's going on, and then thinking, okay, this is a really good opportunity for us to push here. And rather than trying to say, let's go and sell to call centers, let's sell to insurance companies, let's sell to SaaS companies, we thought, let's just focus on recruitment for now, choose one market, really hammer it home and prove ourselves out there before we look to expand. That's just kind of worked for us ever since. It's more like we we sort of fell into recruitment by chance rather than by intent, but have stayed there because it's done us very well so far. And are you focusing mostly in the UK or have you found some success outside We've got some customers outside, so we do focus on the UK, but if someone comes knocking our doors and they're from Australia or from, say, Singapore or from the States or something, we aren't going to turn around and say no. Some of our best paying customers are actually abroad. So we've got a SaaS company based in France who are you know, a really good company for us to work with. They really get a lot of benefit from the software too for the reporting and the gamification side of things. Whereas in recruitment, I think especially, everyone really loves a good haggle. So if we get someone who comes to us outside of recruitment, generally we'll find they're much more willing to pay, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you tend to find because in, for example, Australia, a lot of the tech over there is probably about five to 10 years behind where the UK is at in terms of recruitment tech. We tend to do quite well over there as well as this kind of more modern way of thinking about sales management. Okay. And how big do you think the space is for recruitment agencies? I think in the in the UK, there's 100,000 recruiters. In the States, it's about three or four times bigger. So I think... If we were to look to sell our product to every single recruiter in the UK, you're looking at about 42 million a year in revenue. Obviously not going to happen. But that's right. what the market size looks like. If you scale that up to say the same sort of thing for the States, you're looking at potentially 200 million between the UK and the US. Add in Australia, I think it's about a third of the size of the UK. So what extra 10 on that? 110 million max. If we get even 10% of that like across the world, I'll be very, very happy. Don't expect us to maybe get that much. But then to start thinking around other sectors you can expand into, such as SaaS or insurance, Wonderful opportunity there to really go and push this out to more industries and really expand that market potential. Although for now, as I said, we definitely want to make sure we're only focused on the rec space. Okay. And so when you say 100,000, though, does that mean there's 100,000 recruiters or there's actually the agencies where there's three to 10 people in the agency that's your ideal client? That was the stats from a few years ago of number of actual recruiters. I imagine it's maybe fallen ever so slightly due to COVID. Um, actual agency numbers, I think, are about 40,000. So you immediately have to yeah. think about, okay, with those kind of numbers, there's a lot of one-man bands or two yeah. or three-man companies that you've got a discount from that immediately. We focus more on those that get to five and above because that's where we can really help. 
So your market is really five to sort of what? Is there any, I imagine the bigger, the better, right? It's kind of, we have a sweet spot of five to 100, I'd say. Above that point, you start getting in-house data teams who will use things like Power BI to start doing a lot of the reporting for them. We do have some companies that are above the 100 mark, and they're the ones who really like the TVs, the gamification, things like that. But for them, there's a different need to those that are in the 5 to 30 range who really just want better visibility of what's going on in their team. Larger companies tend to have that figured out already. So we try and operate in the 5 to 100 space. Generally, the smaller, the more likely they're going to sign up and move a little bit faster. But those that are the, say, 50 to 100 range, they're the kind of perfect customer you want on board because they bring good revenues with them. Okay. And so when companies have come out, have come to approach you like the SaaS company in France, how has been the onboarding? Has it been a different experience to the recruiters? Not massively, to be fair. No, if nothing else, it's probably easier. Recruitment, we definitely didn't choose an easy market. Recruitment, every single agency has different metrics, different ways of working, different ways of logging things in their CRM. Going to a SaaS firm, it's number of calls made, emails sent, meetings booked or demos booked, and then deals closed and the revenue as a result. It's really nice and simple. So nothing else with the SaaS companies, it's easier. The training is still exactly the same. We show them how to use the platform in the same way because fundamentally we're dealing with sales teams almost exclusively. You can only really run a sales team so many ways. So no, I think it's not too bad, actually. It's quite easy, I think, outside of recruitment. And has there been discussions for, for Pivot to, say, SaaS companies that fit the criteria that your SaaS client in France? We're currently bringing in a new commercial leader at some point. So we had a VP sales back in March who left to go and work in London, got offered some very good money, so really can't fault him. So we're kind of back at square one when it comes to our commercial department. It's just me heading up marketing, sales efforts, that sort of thing, managing partnerships. Um, so with this new commercial leader coming in, the plan is going to be at some point to have that discussion of, do we stay in recruitment and grow to a certain size and look to exit? Or do we pivot into another industry and then look to continue with a recruitment vertical, a SaaS vertical, an insurance vertical, and try and grow all three and maybe have a trade sale to someone in a more general space like Cubspot rather than just someone inside the recruitment space. Okay. So as I understand the gamification, you were saying there's notifications when you, the team makes sales. Recruitment, from my understanding, is a sort of slow game, right? I mean, you know, the sales aren't closing that quickly, I would imagine. How does that affect the sort of gamification aspect of your platform? I think in the executive search firms, those that are hiring the, you know, big senior directors, like 70K plus salaries, pounds, that is, I imagine the States is more like 120 plus. Um, those ones definitely we don't really suit and we tend not to work with executive search firms. Those are the ones that go out there and will say, right, this is going to take three months. We're going on a whole process here, building you out a shortlist. Where we tend to do best is what we call low margin, high volume sales. So those that are making three plus placements a month. These are the ones that are hiring for roles like customer support staff or sales staff themselves or marketing uh, general staff rather than marketing leaders. They're the ones where they will make a lot of phone calls. They'll be sending a lot of CVs out. They'll always be on the hunt for new clients. That sort of internal sales kind of, I suppose, environment where it's more about quantity rather than quality. That's where we do quite well, and that's where we try and put the focus. Because ultimately, if your target is to sit there and make 50 phone calls a day and we can motivate you to make 55 or 60 a day instead because you really want to be number one in the competition, think about what that can do for business over a long, a long period of time. That's where the ROI kind of kicks in. Okay, so I understand. So it's really gamifying. Like The sales teams, are they hitting their numbers in terms of sending out emails and getting proposals sent out, things like that? Exactly that, yeah. So generally, if they do more activity, the better it is for us. Okay, perfect. So I understand now the COVID 
you took a bit of a hit. Mm. Uh, how's been, how have you managed to gain back that traction and what channels are you finding successful now for, for your growth strategies? Yeah. So when COVID kind of kicked off here in the UK, our lockdown date was set as the 23rd of March. And I think it was on the 16th that everyone started to catch when that the government is thinking about a national lockdown. As of the 16th, pretty much every deal we had completely froze up. Like anything going through implementation or setup froze, new business froze, everything just stopped. And I think that's when we just peaked at 36K a month in monthly recurring revenue. So that was our highest point we'd ever been at. Really, really good times, heading towards 40, happy days. And then COVID kicked in. A few customers left, at least initially, the ones that really panicked to couple their shop, unfortunately. And this pulled us down to about where we currently sit now, I think actually is about 32. It pulled us down to about 30 because we lost one of our larger customers as well that had been with us for three and a half years. Real shame, mm-hmm. but it is what it is. Um, and then come like June, July time, everything sort of unfroze again. We had a lot of inbounds come through in June, July, probably the most I think we've ever seen in the business's history in like a two-month window. Um, mm-hmm. And that led to a lot of business closing in the last quarter, plus a bunch more due to close towards the end of this year too. So it hasn't been terrible in terms of the long-term impact. Short-term, it really hurt for a few months, but we have slowly started to gain that back now. And if nothing else, I've really just helped to certain to potential investors in the future that, you know, this is a business that isn't just a nice to have. A lot of businesses have really needed this because when you're remote, you want to be able to motivate your team. You want to be able to report on who's doing what. If nothing else, that has been even stronger now that they're not in the office and they're actually working remotely. So it's not been too bad for us. Really good product proof whilst also maintaining the majority of our revenue. Okay. And um, you mentioned inbound. Has that been sort of the biggest source of leads or where, where mm. are you getting most of your leads? Referrals and inbounds, definitely. So word of mouth, people saying, oh, I use this really cool bit of tech at the minute. Uh, go and have a look at it and they'll get in touch that way. Others will just come to us blind because they've heard about us through a website or they've seen us on LinkedIn or something like that. We have the occasional like outbound that comes to be. If I spot a company that I really want to work with and I know they use a particular CRM, I'll just be like, hey, look, you use the CRM. We work with 60 other customers like you that do this. Here's what we help. Do you think it's worth a conversation or you can tell me to go away? More often than not, they'll entertain it or just say, no, we currently use this system, so we're totally fine. Thank you. And if that other system is our competitor, to say, well, we can save you about half the amount of money that you're currently spending with a lot of the functionality retained. Is it worth a conversation still? They'll normally go, okay, go on, then why not? But overwhelmingly at the minute, it's inbound. I'm very wary of relying on inbound because if that dries up in one month, then suddenly all of our sales stop as well, which isn't ideal. And that's why we're looking to bring in this commercial leader to one, solidify what that marketing side looks like, but two, to also look at building an outbound team to make sure we can still be in control of our own destiny. Okay, got it. So how big is your sales team right now? <laughs> Just me, you're looking at it. Oh my goodness, good for you. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's six of us in the team. There's me and my co-founder. Like I moved from being the techie well, I was a CEO techie, essentially, to being more commercial. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have customer success manager, uh, implementation manager to help her with getting new customers on board, two additional devs, and then my CTO to make up the sixth. This is where okay. we're now looking to grow out that sales team again with this hire coming in. Okay, that's good. What were some of the toughest times where you were like, oh my gosh, it doesn't look like we're going to make it? Uh, end of 2016, just as we were about to raise the funding, we were basically out of cash and just thought, let's shut this down. And obviously the investor got in touch, that kept us going. End of 2017, so I start of 2018. That was when we'd run out of cash. It was just me and my co-founder again. We weren't getting our stipend anymore from our old university. I had literally no income from the business um, in any way, shape, or form. Fortunately for me, I had like a, a thing outside. So outside of the business, I commentate on competitive video games. So that paid a bit of money. That's why there's a big fancy mic in front of my face uh, <laughs> and good, a game good. chair behind my head. Um, so that kept the bills coming in for me, which kept the lights on, kept us working, which was all good. That was the second time. And I swear there was a third one that I spoke about that I can't really remember anymore. 
maybe there was a third one at some point, but those are the big two ones that are really stick out to me as, you know, really sucking. I remember being on a board call in like December 2017 and just being in tears. Like my board didn't know I was crying, but I was just sat there just like crying, like this is just horrible. Nothing's going right. I don't know what's in the board report. I've had to just fire everyone. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to quit and jack it in. I'm glad we stuck it out. We said, look, another six months, let's give it a go. If it doesn't work by summer, we'll close up shop and do something else. But fortunately, it all came to right, so I really can't complain. That's great. And so we're at that time before you had to lay, lay all your friends off, right? This is sort of, mm. Were you still living at home then? Yes, I literally moved into my own house. God, I'm 27 now, about to turn 28 in a week today, actually. Oh, early happy birthday to me. Moved into my own house six months ago. So it's only really been recently I've done that. My parents have always been very supportive, like paid them a bit yeah. of board and rent to keep the lights on for my end as well. And then very recently when partner moves into my own house. So it's been very lovely to finally get my own four, four walls to make into an office. Yeah. So tell me how that felt uh, when you were able to sort of finally be able to pay yourself and then move into the uh, into mm. your own place. That must have been a great moment. Was that one of the sort of the highs, uh, bright spots oh. on your entrepreneurial journey? Definitely, but advice to many, don't try and move house during COVID because it turns out building materials, not really available. Terrible <laughs> idea to smash some wall downs and pull some floors up. Would not advise doing it again. Um, but no, it was a big success point. You know, to see all your friends around you that you were like at university with or friends from like high school, you know, getting married, having kids, got their own house, got a job where they're being paid quite well. Uh, Me and my co-founder were like, man, we could be earning like double this in a, in a business. We could go and walk into a game studio again, what we've done historically most likely, and get paid more than we were being paid by the business. But I think recently, like this month, for example, my co-founder got a salary bump. So now he's actually on the sort of salary beyond elsewhere, which to him is a massive achievement, especially given he's got a kid in his own house to pay for. It's been really good for him. It did take five years. It was a real long slog. But now that we're at the stage where we both got our own house, we've got our own families, like things are feeling a lot better now. But it was a hard slog for five years. And it sounds like you're on your way. Eh? You're starting to pay yourself. You you see some growth, even though COVID is happening. I know that you've got a strategy to survive other lockdowns. You could even pivot out of the recruitment. There's plenty of businesses that are doing very well now. So you could start mm. looking, well, maybe the recruiting's not going to be great if you know the vaccine is out. Maybe things are starting to get better. Yeah. Recruitment. So they always say recruitment is the first industry to feel the effects of a recession and the last one to stop feeling the effects of it as well. Okay. Because naturally, as soon as any business feels that there's something going wrong, they'll put a pause on hiring straight away and just say, right, we can't hire That's anyone right. right now. So putting a pause on. So recruitment feels that the most. And when a business is trying to say, we're not too sure what the future holds, the last thing you want to do is increase overheads, right? So you're not going to hire. So the industry had kind of really slowed down. But admittedly, in the last few months, like, I think in April, we were at 30% of like February activity for recruitment activity in the UK. It was horrible. And mm -hmm. then since then, it's just gone by step by step by step back up. And we're mm -hmm. now at about 74% of where it was pre-COVID. So things are improving. It's just taking time. Tell me about um, the relationship you have with NatWest Bank. Did you have to go outside of them for mentorship and funding? Or is it you mostly stayed with them? Or how has that relationship yeah. been? I mean, the idea was you get like 18 months of free mentorship and support, which obviously we then used and went through. And that was as a part of a company called Entrepreneurial Spark that were powered by NatWest. So you were in NatWest buildings. It was NatWest staff around you, but you also had some Entrepreneurial Spark staff who were your enablers or coaches, essentially. And then when Entrepreneurial Spark kind of decided, actually, no, we really want to focus on corporate, like in entrepreneurship, like coaching corporates to be more agile. Um, NatWest said, actually, we really like what we can do with this. I mean, truthfully, between me and well, not between me and you, between me, you and the listeners now. Hi, NatWest, if you're listening. I think the reason why they really wanted to support new businesses so much was it was kind of their sorry for 2008, like the whole financial disaster and all that. They were like, yeah, okay, we'll say sorry by giving support to new businesses. 
So when Entrepreneurial Spark wanted to stop doing their kind of entrepreneur support stuff, NatWest took it on. But their rule was, if you've been on Entrepreneurial Spark before, you can't come and join our program now. And for six months that lasted, and they were like, okay, actually, we need more businesses. Therefore, if you've been on it before, you can come back into the fold. So we rejoined, and right now we are still part of that program. We're on their kind of higher tier one, where the top 25, uh, top 25 businesses across the UK get to be on what's called the Next Level program, mm-hmm. where you get more support, you get more direct um, connections being built out through their network, things like that. So thanks to them, we've had office space for free essentially for four years now. And I think we're at a point where, as of like COVID, we've decided actually we're going to be a remote company. We are mm. still mainly based around Birmingham, but the idea is you meet one day a month in Birmingham and that's it. Okay. So network support through the coaches, through the mentors, they had a lot of those to offer you through the office space, things like that has been really, really valuable. So, and have you needed to go outside of that mentorship? Where do you get your greatest sources of sort of um, coaching or strategies, mm. sessions with people that are other SaaS owners that have sort of been through the problems that you may be experiencing now? Where are you getting that help yeah. from? So I think a lot of my support comes from our chairman, who's not really a SaaS founder. Like he hasn't been in SaaS before, so it's a new one for him, but he knows a hell of a lot about business, like very, very smart guy. When it comes to SaaS itself, it tends to be through connections in the industry that I come to have people that will help me out. So great example is we'd be selling a bunch of like software to someone, find out another vendor is also supplying to them, have a conversation about a partnership, find out there's a real golden egg there, someone that knows an awful lot. And I just talk to them casually on LinkedIn or WhatsApp and be like, hey, just thinking about this, actually, how did you guys approach that? And then offer some thoughts to grab coffee or dinner together and just talk through those things together. Mm-hmm. Um, other methods, more general learning. I'm in Nathan Latka's like SaaS hackers group. Oh, you are? Okay. Of, yeah, that's not a bad place to be. And there's some really good like CEO AMAs in there, a couple of bits of data points that he releases. I'm always going to SaaS stock, for example, to go and see what's going on there. Basically, if it's anything to do with SaaS, I'll try and immerse myself in that. Okay, great. Well, you're doing some pretty serious networking then. Yeah. I mean, so networking kind of on a loose sense on the last two, like the second one's a conference and the lack of thing is a Slack group where we ask some questions if anyone needs help yeah. or we just discuss topics. I wouldn't say I'm like a hardcore networker. Absolutely not. But I do make sure I speak to people and just say, look, I've got some thoughts here. What do you think? Like I'm an open book. I'll say to, I'll say to anyone, here's our revenue. Here's what problems we're having right now. Here's what we're currently going through. And people just really open up when you open up, I think. If you kind of extend the offering first, people will be more than happy to be open back to you. And you're still able to do a lot of that face-to-face, though, it sounds like you're... Not at the minute, admittedly. Uh, not since March. But normally I'd meet people for like breakfast in London and things like that and just have a conversation, yeah. Okay, great. How about uh, big ideas, anything? What's your what's your future plans for um, 1UP Sales? Uh, so the future plan and the vision I always have in my mind that I always tell my team is my vision for the product is that we become what I'm terming the hub spot of sales team management, Right. Okay. So where HubSpot kind of help their customers to help their customers, we mm. want to help our customers to help their staff. So where HubSpot might give you blogging, website building, ad management, sales sequences, all that kind of good stuff, we want to be able to give you internally for your sales team things like a commission tracker, reporting, gamification, training tools, anything you can think of that will help a salesperson do their job better. We want to be involved in that in some capacity, especially where it involves using data they produce in their CRM or their calling solution. That's the long-term vision. I think in terms of where the business itself actually goes, like the plan is to raise half a million next year um, with this new commercial leader in place, build out a sales team. The short-term vision, there's two kind of exit paths that we've got. One is exit in three or four years' time in a trade sale. That'll come when we hit between four and six million in ARR. If that mm-hmm. doesn't come to be, that's when we kind of go, okay, we need to go outside of recruitment now, start expanding elsewhere, looking a little bit bigger, and then maybe around the 20 million ARR mark, look for an exit towards someone like a host bot. 
to be truthfully honest, that's my dream acquisition partner. I'd love to build a tool that is sold as being the HubSpot for sales team management to then sell to HubSpot. Right. To sell to a mid-market um, CRM provider that serves more than just one industry. That'd be the dream around the 20 million ARR mark. Okay, great. And and what's your equity stake right now look at? Mine's 37.5. My other co-founder has 37.5. Investor has 16.6. And the rest is in a share option pool for employees. Okay, good. So you're looking like you're in a strong position to to capitalize on some yeah. further further growth. That's great. Jerry, listen, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. We're coming up to the top of the hour. How can our listeners find out more about what you're doing? And are you open to them reaching out to you to ask you some more individual questions about your zero to 30,000 MRR journey? Yeah, of course. Always happy to share little things that we found works. There's always little micro bits on the way that help. You can get me at Derry, so D-E-R-R-Y at oneupsales.co.uk. So that's one as in the number, but spelled out O-N-E, up as in the direction, and then sales.co.uk. Or if you just go for Derry Holt on LinkedIn, which is D-E-R-R-Y-H-O-L-T. I'm on LinkedIn pretty much all the time. Always happy to talk, so I'm always talking to people on there anyway. Feel free to reach out and drop me a connection request and we'll talk. Perfect. Thanks so much, Derry. More than welcome. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host, Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner.